Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, the weekly podcast for the incurably bookish. We will be talking to authors and creatives from across the world of publishing and discussing the books they have loved. Looking for a recommendation? Then look no further. Head to your favourite cosy spot and let us pick out your next favourite book. On the podcast this week, we welcome novelist Kate Mascarenas. To date, Kate has published three novels, including The Psychology of Time Travel and The Thief on the Winged Horse. Her third and most recent is the gorgeously gothic Hokey Pokey. Set in 1929 at the Regent Hotel, Birmingham, Nora checks in under a false name. She is there to spy on the famed operatic singer Berenice Oxbow. But just like the Regent Hotel, there is more to Nora's story than meets the eye. Kate, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Hello, it's lovely to be talking to you. I was very excited when this interview sort of first came about, when I was talking about it with your publicist, because you're from Birmingham originally. And um, and do you live in Birmingham now? I do, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you do. I yes, for yes, quite a long time now, yeah. You're back in Birmingham now. And even though I'm not from Birmingham myself, I grew up um, pretty close by. So it was always kind of growing up, it was the sort of the big city to me. It was Birmingham that you went to. And I've got a lot of love from Birmingham as a city. So to see it kind of set uh, there in the book and to know that you were from there, I was sort of, I don't know, it was quite excited. Yeah, I'm really glad about that. And it's it's nice that, because uh, Birmingham's a bit undersung. So I'm, mm. I'm glad that you had that reaction to the setting. That's that's lovely. Absolutely. And I, I did, I, sort of one of the questions I did have was, is that sort of part of the thinking because really, I feel before maybe something like, I don't know, sort of Peaky Blinders, maybe Birmingham in terms of kind of being known as a place where you might sort of set, you know, different stories and things like that. It doesn't come up as often. And was that kind of a thinking for you for setting Hokey Pokey there? Yeah, because with my previous two books, the first one was set over a variety of different areas. And then the second one was set in Oxford. Mm. And I had it in mind setting something in Birmingham for a while. And there were certain reasons why I thought it might work thematically for this story but also a big part of it was just that I wanted to write about where I'm from and you know Birmingham doesn't get to see itself in books that often mm. uh, in, in contemporary fiction you know there are a few writers doing good work but yeah we are we are underrepresented so it was it was nice to to do that yeah Yes, absolutely. The joy of, I don't know, being a writer is, you know, you can see that sort of gap and think, well, you know, I can bridge that, you know, I can do that with my work and sort of bring Birmingham more into kind of the literary um, scene. And am I right in understanding? So you you were born there, you spent some time there, but then you've sort of moved around mm -hmm. and and come back. Yeah, I didn't move too far. We we spent my teens just north of Manchester in Oldham. Okay. Uh, I, we, we lived there from when I was 14 and then uh, I left when I was 20 and I went to university in Oxford and then came to Birmingham uh, immediately afterwards for family reasons really and okay. have stayed here. Yeah. And it's done quite well by me. So I don't really have any complaints. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm aware I do. We don't necessarily want to make the whole podcast talking about how great Birmingham <laughs> is. But with Hokey Pokey now being out there in the world, obviously, that you know, this is your third book. So I imagine, you know, it's kind of a process that you've got used to. But is that still an exciting time, a nervous time for you as an author? I think because my second book came out, literally, it was like two days before the second lockdown when all of the bookshops shut. Yes. And uh, a lot of the hard work that we'd put into it, we, we were still able to achieve a fair bit, but it wasn't the, the sort of launch for that book that any anybody involved in producing it had hoped for. 
Um, and I, I kind of feel the after effects of that a little bit, actually. I, I, mm. I, I think certainly my sort of attitude in the run up to this one was much more sort of cautious <laughs> than I think it would otherwise have been. Not because I thought that there was going to be anything that happened, but I think it just sort of changed my attitude subtly that, you know, sometimes things come up that are beyond your control mm. and you just kind of have to deal with them. But uh, it's it's been enjoyable seeing it go out there. And, and actually, in terms of, you know, celebrating the launch, it has meant that I've also got to see some people that I, you know, I haven't seen since before the pandemic. So that was actually a nice little reunion opportunity as well. In some ways, it, it feels very positive that, you know, we're, mm. we're kind of coming out of, of something that, you know, is difficult for all of us. And uh, this is a sort of rounding off of the project that I was working on for most of that time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And there must be, is it fair to say there's something quite freeing in that attitude of kind of, you know, after that experience, which, you know, for any creative can't be easy, you know, you have this launch and then and then this kind of world changing event happens. But is it quite sort of freeing now to, you know, kind of have that attitude of like, well, you know, these kind of big out of my hands situations can happen. And, and so there's no point kind of resisting that. Yeah, I think so. That's how I've experienced it anyway. And there are, there are kind of, I suppose, in terms of, you know, all of the work that I do around it as well, it's, it's like I would, I would do things that I think work for the book and work for me. But I also, I know that in the big picture, sort of in the, in the grander scheme of things, there are aspects of it that are not going to move the needle. And I, I think it is quite healthy to have an awareness of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But in terms of you and your relationship with words, from a young age, were you always kind of interested in stories? Were you always a reader or did that come later on for you? No, I was I was always a reader. I learned to read early and both my parents were big readers as well. Mm. Uh, while I was at primary school, my mother went to university, which she hadn't had the opportunity to, to do financially before that. And she oh, okay. trained in librarianship. So when she oh, was qualified, um, I mean, I'd always use public libraries, but... It meant that I was I was in that library pretty much all the time that I wasn't mm. at school. And my dad was a big reader and he read so much without sort of any prejudice. It's like he had his preferences. He liked the modernists. He liked reading European novels in translation. But he would he would read, you know, a crime novel or a romance novel or anything with an open mind. Um, and that was a really nice sort of attitude to be around in terms of my own reading. And they were quite, I mean, I think... You know, people are more cautious now about children reading above their age range, I think. And my parents would have sort of, if they saw me reading something unsuitable, they would have taken it off me. But they did actually turn a blind eye quite a lot, I think, to mm. me just sort of subtly taking books, you know, from the library or, or, you know, or from the shelves that might have been a bit sort of above my comprehension. And I, I think that was good for me, actually. Yeah. So, so I was always reading and much more of a reader than a, a sociable child. I was a bit of a loner, really. Um, I, had, I had friends, but I was always sort of much happier just to sort of slink off with my book than, you know, to, to sort of get involved and like run Bunch's play or anything like that. I was very much sort of in my own little world. <laughs> That's a story we've we've definitely heard yeah. before on the podcast and people sort of saying, oh, you know, I was, yeah, at school, I was reading a lot and, you know, but yeah, a very particular sort of image is painted. But I think that's great about your parents being very uh, sort of free or at least kind of understanding if it was kind of turning a blind eye 
to you kind of reading above your age range because that that's actually a conversation we regularly have within the shop is um you know if a kid comes up with a book that we feel is slightly, you know, older than their age range. You know, do we say to the parent, oh, we feel that's, or, or do we just sort of leave it and go, well, you know, they've made that made that decision. Because, yeah, I've always felt that, you know, reading what interests you. Um, I spoke to someone once from the World Book Day organisation. They said they did a study and actually you know, one of the best things for to get kids into reading is to just allow them to read, you know, whatever. If they pick it up and say, oh, I'm interested in this, you know, to let them read. And of course, you know, I'm sure as like a parent or guardian, you know, you want certain, obviously certain restrictions on that. But I think it can lead to a great sort of exploration and finding out kind of early on what you like and what you don't like, because it's such a uh, important period for, I suppose, kind of working out what your taste is, whether that's a really broad one or a more narrow one. But it sounds like, did you sort of develop your father's kind of wide interest in reading? Yes, I did. And I think the other sort of thing I suppose that I miss about my childhood reading, because it isn't possible once you're out of that developmental stage, really, but Mm. just that experience of encountering something where quite often my actual, my literacy was ahead of my comprehension. Mm. So just that sense of feeling like I was in a world that I didn't quite have the life experience to understand yet, but, you know, almost being in touching distance of it. Um, mm. And just sort of be sitting within that sort of sense of, of, of unknowing, really, was very exciting. And, you know, it's not something that I think I can capture the same way as an adult. So, yeah, so that, that's, that's kind of what I think about when I, when I think about my childhood reading, really. And, yeah, I mean, I moved on to adult books when I was about 11, 12. But, I mean, up until that point, I remember when I was very small, like my dad was an Irish speaker. So he would try and get, Ladybird used to do translations, I don't know whether they still do, of their well-loved tales, and he had ones in Irish for me. So he would like sort of read those with me and I would pick up like little bits of vocabulary and little bits of the grammar. So, you know, I have like a really rudimentary, sort of at a child's level, I know like my Irish colours and how to say basic <laughs> phrases, that kind of thing. But I, had, I think I had the Elves and the Shoemaker in Irish. Um, oh, nice. And that always felt like a really nice connection that... Although he was sort of away from his family, he was giving me something of where he was from. So I remember that. And then kind of when I was older, I didn't really have favourite books as such. And there are some things that I think, I guess what I think about now is which ones I've remembered since and how, which ones I've thought about most often since. And one of those is a, a book called Cora Ravenwing, which is by Gina Wilson. And it was written as a children's book in 1980, but I think about 10 years ago, Faber released like a, they they republished it as in a very sort of sleek, minimalist looking adult uh. edition, <laughs> <laughs> which, um, which which you can get. But what, what I remember about it, because I, I mean, I'll just briefly summarise what it's about, but it's, it's set in the 1950s and it has a very traditional setup for a 20th century children's book, which is that there is uh, this little girl who's from Birmingham, actually, and uh, she moves to a much smaller, close-knit community because her father's job changes. And the first person she meets is this other little girl called Cora. They're about nine or ten, I think. And um, she's playing in the graveyard. And there's something sort of slightly otherworldly about Cora. You know, she, she spends a lot of time amongst the dead. She explains that, you know, this is where she spends a lot of time. Her father works there, but also her own mother died when she was born. 
and she's you know she's quite sort of intense like she writes a lot of Mm. nature poetry but Becky's really drawn to her and really likes her and then runs into problems because when she meets the other children in her class who are very welcoming and really want to befriend Becky they say you can't go near Cora like she's an outcast like she's she's completely ostracized and Becky can't understand why because it seems totally irrational and it's actually quite a superstitious sort of um because Cora's mother died in childbirth, they've kind of held her responsible. So really this story is Becky trying to spend time with Cora secretly while not sacrificing the connection that she has to, you know, her other mm. new friends and, and also trying to settle in into somewhere that, you know, she's new to. You know, I feel like it's a, it's a nice sort of twist on the idea of, you know, somebody coming to a new place and getting bullied that actually she's the person coming in and saying what on earth is going on here this Mm. doesn't make you know why why are you you know why are you cutting this girl out for something that isn't her fault and I guess thinking about it now I mean I've I've read it reread it sort of fairly recently sort of within the past few years it just it has a really nice handle on loneliness and just like some of the injustices of you know, being at that age and not having very much control over your life, you know, that as a child you do have to submit to sort of... Because within the story as well, it's like all of the adults are active participants, you know. In fact, there's one who kind of ringleads it in a way. So it's not even that it's sort of confined to the school. And if I think about other books that, you know, I, I remember from childhood, they do quite often have that kind of focus on loneliness. Um, I really liked Jenny Nimmo's... Uh, Emmeline's Moon, which is the middle book of the Snow Spider trilogy. And that has a similar sort of storyline, really. There's a very lonely boy in that who has quite an eccentric father. Um, and, you know, the, the narrator has this sort of developing friendship with them. And um, just before Christmas, I also reread uh, Tom's Midnight Garden, which I don't, because it has such a strong central friendship, I don't think of that as being about loneliness. But I was just really struck on this last reading at how in their respective worlds, both Tom and Hattie, you know, as the, the, they sort of seeing each other sort of, you know, as he travels into the, into the past, they're so isolated within their respective mm-hmm. worlds. He's away from everybody that he knows well. She doesn't really have a very secure place within her family. And there are all these really poignant conversations, you know, where they're discussing which one of them is real. That I thought, God, these are these are actually much more painful <laughs> than mm. than, you know, I'd I'd remembered them being. I think in terms of stories that, you know, I have an attachment to, that seems to be a bit of a common theme. Yeah. Oh, is the these kind of lonely central yeah. characters. Yeah. yeah. I think it, I think it's it's uh, yeah, it's it's something that yeah, that I can I can see as a, a thread running through, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, it's just so wonderful to see kind of what's what's available out there for children to read and dealing with you know really you know really difficult things like loneliness, which I think is something you know probably you know a lot of children do mm. um, do experience. I always say I would probably never be uh, certainly a teenager again. I don't think I would no. be. <laughs> it's, it's not a period of my life I'd ever ever want to re- uh, repeat. Yeah, and it's interesting that. So my PhD was in psychology and literary studies, mm. but I was looking at how certain stereotypes are constructed within children's books. So I kind of I, I looked at it, you know, I mean, I finished it sort of 10 years ago. But during that sort of period where I was working academically, you know, I was I was I was looking at children's books all the time through that slightly different lens. And 
you know, mm. looking at how they've sort of how the idea changes over time as well over what is suitable for children. And, you know, there are phases mm. sort of, of of more serious subject matter or sort of I mean, a lot of Cora Ravenwing is really quite bleak. And I, mm. I kind of I, I just I, I think that, you know, it's not that there aren't sort of um, more hard hitting books for uh, children these days. But I, I'm quite sure that the publishing conversations around them must sound very different uh, mm. than they did sort of 40 years ago. Um, so that sort, of, that sort of changing picture of how we think of the child reader um, is really interesting to me as well. Absolutely. Yes, it's funny because I feel when you come across maybe children's books from, let's say, a time where maybe they're a bit more, or, you know, certain things aren't to be discussed or, or, or mentioned, but there can be quite an uncanny element to them. Yeah. Um, because I don't know, because it seems like they're sort of actively trying to avoid certain kind of subject matters or certain kind of emotions. So they can have this almost slightly kind of eerie quality to them. And did you, uh, you know, as a reader, so did that continue into your teens? Did, did you ever have a sort of, not a break from it, but a period where you didn't read as much or or has that remained pretty consistent uh, no I was a bit of a book junkie really I was just, <laughs> I, was just um, I, I did sort of I, I mean I moved I mean as I say at about 12 I started I started reading books for adults mm. partly because there wasn't quite there were books for teenagers but the, the, there wasn't a YA market in the way that no. there is now at all um, so a lot of a lot of the books that were aimed at teens I'd kind of already sort of read when I was like sort of 10 to 12 yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and I was kind of ready to move on to onto you know books that were were aimed at at adults really. And I mean, I guess I remember reading. I read the Buddha of Suburbia when I was thirteen, and that had a huge impact on me actually because it was kind of it was the it was actually it was I think it's the first instance of by rep that I'd, I'd seen in a novel. Mm. So that that was actually really important to me. And um, I, I mean, I, what I do kind of remember though is I. Throughout my teens, I read a lot more men than women, and I didn't even think about it. <laughs> it was just kind of what was there, and you know, mm. I kind of just sort of accepted without really questioning that that was what sort of the literary landscape looked like. Um, and it wasn't until you know, I guess to some extent when I got to university, um, but certainly more in my twenties, that things started to even out. Um, mm. Yeah, it's interesting about the the sort of you know representation aspect because I feel that that's a you know very common theme with most readers. I mean, people we've had on the podcast, but just readers in general can sort of remember the first time that in a book you saw something that previously you hadn't come across in a book, and whether that just sort of reflects the kind of the world around you or or an aspect of yourself, it really sticks with you, doesn't it? I, it I does, certainly find, yeah. 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 And some things as well, it's easy to sort of, there are some things that I read at the time that were really important to me, but I now have some ambivalence, I guess, or, or they're quite <laughs> complicated feelings. Like I was thinking a lot because of Martin Amos's death recently. His books mm. were really important to me when I was a teenager because he was such a brilliant, uh, you know, just in terms of con constructing a sentence, you know, they were so mm. perfect. But also he he expanded my understanding of what novels did. And, you know, I, I, I think the Rachel Papers was the, the first one of his that I read, which, you know, when you read it as an adult woman, it's a really complicated read just because mm. it's quite hard inhabiting that sort of adolescent boy mindset um, when he says quite a lot of hostile things about women. Mm. But I, I still really treasure it, even though, you know, I understand that by many measures it's it's problematic as, as mm. you know, as we 
use that word now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think many of us are now sort of having the conversation about, I don't know, kind of favourite classics or or books that we read um, when we were younger or, or even other art forms that we sort of consumed that now you realise, you know, sort of looking back and you think, oh, goodness, that was really, you know, I didn't really see that at the time. Mm. But now that really stands out as something that really it hits a certain part of you, a kind of um, it's like a snag and you feel like, oh, like, what's that doing there? And you have to sort of, you know, balance the kind of enjoyment maybe you received of that when you first kind of consumed it and the fact that you realize you know it's um it's kind of more complicated than you first realized yeah i've just finished reading the uh, claire dedera's book the monsters uh yeah which is on this subject and what you what you do with those feelings um and uh i, I mean i didn't agree with all of her examples of everything she was mm. saying, actually, but there were there were some parts of it that I, I thought were you know were, were very beautifully considered. Just mm. the, the sense in which you know you you have <laughs> like this sort of stain that creeps through things that you mm. might have a, a great deal of love for that you can't sort of separate out certain things, but you know the 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 sort of beauty washes over you as as well as as you know the the, the difficult parts. And uh, yeah, I found that quite a moving read, really. Uh, I've got when you when you mentioned that you probably saw my ears uh, prick <laughs> up because I recently got a copy of that because I think it's such a it's such a interesting yeah interesting subject matter. So I'm looking forward to and now I've heard what you've said. Uh, yeah, I'm particularly I'll, I'll think about that when I'm uh, I'm reading it. And so yeah, so yeah, kept reading until you're uh, into your teens. And I'm so sorry. Remind me of what you studied at Oxford again. It was so I actually I studied English uh, literature yeah. and language. And uh, much later on, I, I uh, switched to psychology sort of uh, when I was older. Um, so I, I got sort of a foot in each of those camps. Um, by the time I started writing novels. But yeah, I, I did my degree at Oxford. And what I recall, I, I enjoyed my third year academically because I could, I kind of gone through, the degree was chronological. You sort of, you were, you were allowed to read whatever you wanted as long as it was published within the specific right. dates for the module, which was uh, incredibly freeing in some ways. I mean, you know, mm. there, 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 there were sort of, there are so many courses that are, are more prescriptive, I think. And it did mean that I had a really good sense of continuity by the time I had sort of, when I, when I got to the stage where I was thinking about what I wrote for my dissertation and everything, I felt like I'd got a really good basis for that. But um, I, I was actually quite miserable as a student sort of for those mm. first couple of years in terms of my work, because I'd gone from sort of feeling quite comfortable with, with A-level where, you know, you, you have a, a very small number of texts and you really drill down and you get to know every little aspect of them. And suddenly it was this much sort of quicker moving, getting mm. a, a, an idea of breadth, but sort of not getting that time to sort of really dedicate to each book. And I, I found it um, just sort of quite disorientating, I think, mm. for the first couple of years I was there and didn't really find my feet in terms of, you know, I had, socially I was all right, I had friends and everything, but in terms of my actual studies, I didn't really find my feet until really my last year. Mm. I can imagine particularly, I mean, I'm aware as someone, you know, who who didn't do an undergraduate in Oxford, I, I maybe have, a, I don't know, a slightly sort of fictional idea of what that would be like in my my head. But I imagine it to be very intense. And actually, it would make sense to me that your third year is only really when everything sort of, you know, comes together, sort of starts starts making sense. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, they have, you know, they have beautiful libraries, which I still use when I have the opportunity. And, you know, all of, all of that was fantastic. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of... 
it, it was an odd time, I think, because I kind of, my little social circle, we were, you know, we were the kids who sort of were, um, you know, we had state school backgrounds or, I mean, actually, mm. I, I did actually, spend, you know, I went to a whole variety of schools. I went to several different ones. I was very used to sort of switching. But the kind of demographics of Oxford felt quite alien to me and mm. my housemates. So that was kind of something that also coloured my time there, really. Yeah. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. But nice that you had that. I think that's so important. Nice that you had that network there of people that could empathise yeah. with that. Because I think, yeah, you know, talking about kind of those characters that, you know, are sort of lonely, that would be a very lonely experience is kind of finding yourself, you know, with people where you think, well, do you get kind of what this is like for me? And, you know, they don't. So it was nice that you had that, yeah. that network there. Yeah. And do you mind me asking, just out of interest, it seemed that it was English and it's kind of on topic, what your final year thesis was on? What, what Did you look at a particular period or...? Um, actually, it was on children's books. I was looking at, oh, the, okay. I was looking at the writer Lucy Ann Boston and a Green Now series. I mean, it, people sort of in their 40s might remember one of them was televised by the BBC as the children of Green Now. It's like a slightly spooky story set in an old Norman sort of house that, uh, you know, this little boy goes to stay with his grandmother and he sort of plays with the ghost of all the children who've lived there before. So there's, uh, there's, there's several of these books and I, I was looking at how uh, Lucy Ann Boston was very concerned about nuclear war. Um, right. So it's an undercurrent to a lot of the, the sort of stories that she was telling within this within this series, even though they, they kind of skirt around. I, I suppose a bit like you were saying before, where they don't mention certain feelings mm. in certain in certain periods, um, but it was still shaping um, mm. the the stories that that she wanted to to tell, even though she you know she wasn't that explicit. Yeah. So uh, gosh, that was I did that uh, twenty two years ago. <laughs> Yeah, so a while, a while now. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. scary, isn't it? I was thinking, I was realising the other day that my undergraduate was further in the past than I'd initially thought. And yeah, it's scary how time <laughs> creeps up on us. So we talked about things that you read when you were younger and uh, the things that you were looking at at university. In terms of sort of more, more recently, do you find you have time for reading or does your own work take up a lot of that time? No, I still read a lot, but it tends to alternate. So I'll read less when I'm sort of heavily into edits mm. and, and redrafting. But um, then there'll be sort of periods while, while I'm waiting to sort of hear back from, you know, uh, various sort of publishing contacts where my reading will go up much more. And yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm, kind of, I'm on a bit of a tear currently reading books that feature therapy in some way I mean this is I mean therapy comes up sort of in in my novel Hokey Pokey which I'm sure we'll, we'll come back to but I'm really interested in how and I guess like the most recently published one that that I've read lately is Big Swiss which is kind of therapy adjacent it's got a really nice premise the main character is a transcriptionist which is actually a job that I've done in the past oh, wow. and she transcribes therapy sessions and she listens to it. She doesn't know what these patients' names are. She doesn't know what they look like. All she knows is what she hears on the file. And there is one particular woman who she gets used to hearing. And as she uh, transcribes the session, she falls in love with her just through sort of hearing these recordings, which is just such an interesting mm. idea. And inevitably they meet. But, but where the tension of the story from that point uh, stems from is that 
the patient doesn't know that she has this insight into her inner world. She's not aware that she's heard all of these transcriptions. That's not something that um, mm. she's clued in on. So that there is this kind of conflict from then on between the transcriptionist knowing that she has all of all of this sort of access to you know to her thoughts and feelings and, and private mm. life, and the patient doesn't. Um, so so that's kind of the one that's most recently published, but. I'm just very interested in how stories that, that feature therapy, they do tend to be about these transgressions. And the therapists tend to be, uh, you know, so often they're portrayed as frauds, which is, is pretty much what I did with Hokey Pokey. Or at the very least, even if they're doing something that, you know, the patient ultimately feels positive about, or, you know, that therapy is some kind of route to healing, there are boundary transgressions. And what I find so interesting about this is if you look at like other caring professions, like other kinds of doctor or, or nurses, they are represented in, in fiction. Uh, you know, there are, there are some examples of monsters, but it seems to me that the spread of representation is much broader that you have, mm. you know, you have very good sort of people sort of fulfilling these roles in, in novels and short stories. Whereas I find it really hard to think of a therapist in fiction who acts ethically, actually, I, I guess is, is what I'm saying. Um, and I'm very curious about why that is. I mean, I've read lately, not quite as recently as Big Swiss, but um, Case Study by Graham McRae Barnett, which is about a, a mm -hmm. kind of RD Lang type figure. And I absolutely loved it. I just loved how it's made up of kind of, uh, it uses sort of faux documentation and nobody in it is quite as they're representing themselves. You never quite have a handle on on who, what, what people are, are really like within it. And I loved that uncertainty and published around about the same time there was My Friend Natalia by Laura Lundstedt, which is entirely set within a sequence of therapy sessions told from the point of view of the therapist who there is something very dodgy about their credentials. And uh, this patient, Natalia, she comes to therapy saying that she can't stop thinking about sex and that the therapist has this experimental method to use with her. And uh, I should say, actually, all of these books that I'm talking about are quite comedic, which is another thing that's interesting, mm. that it's like it's something that, that sort of gets handled a lot in, in a kind of humorous sort of satiric way. And, uh, you know, but again, you have like this, this sort of therapist who isn't, isn't really, you know, what they're presenting themselves as. And then going much further back, well, it's 20 years and it's, it's relative, isn't it? But um, the, I was thinking about uh, Aiding and Abetting by Muriel Spark, who's a writer, you know, I've read a lot of. And that novel, it, I mean, it was right at the end of her career. It's the penultimate one. And it, it isn't where I'd start if right. I was, you know, I was recommending sort of to somebody who's completely new to it. But it is really interesting on complicity and it involves somebody who says she's a psychiatrist who's very sought after for therapy and she's approached by this man who claims to be Lord Lucan. Uh, this is at the start of the book. And she's quite surprised by him saying this because she already has a patient who claims to be Lord Lucan. And the kind of the ensuing sort of comedy and discussions about how people enable sort of uh, atrocious things, you know, in the case of mm. Lucan that, you know, he'd killed this woman and as an aristocrat you know people were kind of enthralled to that his his mm -hmm. friends and associates helped him get away essentially so it's you know it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting novel but I do wonder about how you know I've met a lot of therapists I've been treated by therapists I've worked alongside them sometimes in, in various capacities 
And to a person, they were well-intentioned. You know, they didn't necessarily always do the right thing. But I don't think that... It, it just It's interesting to me that they're so consistently awful <laughs> in books. And I'm not sure whether... I've kind of wondered whether some of it is that historically they've had the power to lock us up, um, mm -hmm. whether it, it might be uh, sort of as, as simple as that. I kind of wonder whether we might be putting them in a slightly parental role and there's all sorts of negative feelings sort of being carried over from, you know, uh, sort of particular sort of family dynamics that are getting played out as well. Um, so I, I haven't got any sort of firm conclusions on that question yet but it's something that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment. It is interesting yeah I've I've also read case study so that's the only really example I can think of but yes when I do think just in in fictional stories in general yes they do they don't come off well do they they've got <laughs> they've got a bad rep um therapists or psychologists and yet that is really interesting to think about yeah why that is when I also feel I don't know I feel in everyday conversations people sort of talk about you know more so these days I think people talk about or oh, you know therapy being a good thing kind of mm. you know go, going to a professional in order to kind of work on your mental health or kind of talk through your mental health. So it's also interesting that that exists at the same time yes. as all these fictional people who are like, you know, either just, yeah, as you said, like either completely monstrous or at least a kind of crossing boundaries that shouldn't be done. Do you think it's to do with the maybe the the intimacy of something like uh, sort of therapy or that, re that relationship that, you know, you're in sort of close quarters, you're talking about very sensitive things that people that just in a fictional sense that just makes people think oh well you know maybe this is going on or this is going on it which seems doesn't plausible, necessarily doesn't it yes i kind of i don't know it's like at the, at the at the sort of apex really you've got like hannibal lecter who sort of eats his patients <laughs> and um it just that's a lot you know um so that is indeed <laughs> a lot yes <laughs> yeah yeah and um I just, yeah, I mean, I can kind of, it's, it's like in terms of that intimacy, that certainly accounts for why you get sort of books like, I mean, I haven't read The Prince of Tides for years and years, but I suppose I think of that as an example of a kind of book where, you know, therapy is, it, it, it's, it's within the story, it fulfills this really important function for the main character. And it, it is, it is how he recovers. But he does have an affair with his therapist. Like, you know, she, so it, and, and that kind of, you know, feels quite shocking to me. So mm. I can kind of, I can see in terms of the intimacy of the relationship, why it's the obvious place for that particular outcome in stories that, you know, you would, you would naturally think, well, that's where the drama's going to be. That's how you create like a mm. good story. You, you, you go for that particular angle. I think there are, there are kind of other sort of, the things about therapists being frauds comes up so much and that I just mm. I find it and I do wonder if that's a little bit of a residue of of the stigma of mental illness actually because mm. it's quite close to saying it's like when she starts saying well all therapists are frauds it's like you're just one little step away from sort of questioning whether mental illness is something that's also mm. a real thing yeah, um, and I, I do wonder whether that was a factor with Spark actually <laughs> that I mean she had it wasn't that she didn't think that mental illness was a real thing but I think her sort of her take on it was you know she had a very sort of religious framework for understanding it for one thing so I wonder how much that because uh, it's not even aiding and abetting isn't even the only book that she she has a therapist in it's something that sort of crops up in some of her other stories so it was obviously something that she was drawn to use as an idea 
Mm. Yes, it's definitely something that a lot of writers, you know, again, creative sort of, you know, feel quite happy to put in their books, whether it is as a kind of active part of the plot or kind of, you know, maybe just um, in the background. And I'd be interested to know, you know, with certain professions, if you put that in a book, people would assume, well, you're going to have to do a lot of research to mm. know how that works. You know, if if someone writes a book in which, I don't know, one of the characters is an astronaut, there would quickly be conversations about that. Oh, well, what research did you do? But I don't know if it would be the same of people who write about, you know, therapists or psychologists or, or you know, who people who deal with mental health. Which is interesting because yeah, I don't know from your your perspective as someone who who knows more of that, who's in that world. You know, do you feel you come across sort of examples where you think this has just purely come from their head? There's kind of been no framework for how this is represented. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because you know, I'm kind of in the camp of with hokey pokey uh, because it's a horror story and it has mm. sort of fantastical elements. I did actually, I did research quite carefully what sort of you know, what was going on at the time. And there were Mm. certain things that we would see as transgressive now that happened more often in the 1920s. So people treating their families, people marrying their former patients. It wasn't that, you know, it was thought to be a good idea, but it happened with greater frequency and didn't receive quite the reactions that it would now. Mm. Um, And I suppose, you know, in that sense, being set in an earlier historical period was, was quite useful to me, that I didn't sort of have to worry quite so much about Mm. if I have sort of my therapist doing some really awful things that she does do some very awful things is it going to be actually grounded in the reality of of what people's experience of Mm. therapy currently is but I mean the other thing that sort of in terms of resistance to and, and questions that might get asked I sometimes feel a bit uneasy because because my PhD is in psychology and because I'm I'm a chartered psychologist there's this sort of what I kind of have to deal with is people's expectation that that their idea of a psychologist is somebody who works clinically. Mm. So I have to kind of be <laughs> extra clear sometimes. I'm not that kind of psychologist because people expect what I'm saying to have authority. And I kind of feel like I have to take, you know, some effort there to be like, no, this isn't actually coming directly from my life experience. You know, the, the, and I, I do wonder sometimes whether possibly on the publication journey, because of that disconnect, where people think that I might have been directly involved in therapy in a way that I haven't been, that, you know, I I have to be wary that they are asking me enough questions, I suppose. You know, the the problem that I more often encounter is that people assume I'm going to be an expert when actually there are things that I need to check and the people that I need Mm. to talk to and uh, books that I need to look up and that whole sort of process of, of being accountable. Absolutely. And I think, yeah, that's fair, because even as I was asking that question, I was aware of, you know, I feel, you know, maybe it's fair to say I sort of reflect a kind of general public's understanding of these things and kind of, you know, we have these words in our head and what they mean, but what we necessarily picture doesn't line up with the reality. So I'm glad I asked that so (laughs) that you could say. And it is, yeah, interesting, that relationship between these kind of fictional characters how the public perceives these things and then the reality. There's kind of a, an interesting triangle with a lot going on. Yeah. And there's always, I think with any, the representation of any profession, people are aware of, of you know, when their own job comes up in fiction and mm. all the things that it gets wrong. And, uh, you know, I think although I'm sort of talking about therapy as a special case, I do know that, like, I mean, my husband's a photographer. And we always have a laugh when they come up in like sort of TV series. They're always so incredibly sleazy, <laughs> you know. <they're> just yes, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, so it's like there there are these sort of stereotypes associated yeah. with particular jobs. I think, and my mum would always complain about librarians being very sort of boring and and, and sort of pedantic, yeah. and uh, you know, having a very sort of typical sort of physical appearance when they come up sort of in stories as well. So you know, I think everybody has their own little sort of bugbear about oh, <laughs> how, absolutely. how gets gets portrayed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because, yeah, don't get me started about how bookselling is, <laughs> is, is is perceived and discussed because, yeah, we, we could be here for a very long time. But, yeah, it's all, yeah, always an interesting thing, sort of how different kind of professions are depicted and why that is and why they sort of loom, some loom kind of more in the imagination than um, others do. Uh, the f- sort of final question or kind of book for you to kind of recommend to our listeners would be a sort of a kind of all-time favourite of yours or one that you feel has had a kind of big impact on you. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of, I don't have favourites in the sense that I might give a different answer on a different day. I, today, I'm, today I'm going to say The Bloody Chamber by Angela Carter. I love how dense and sensory the, the imagery is in mm. it. Um, and I just, I mean, I think with fairy tales generally, I like the sort of sense, that sort of slight sense of dislocation from where you are in time. Mm-hmm. The fact that she has, you know, her characters using telephones and, you know, going off to sort of historically very specific wars. But, mm-hmm. you know, they are in this land of the fae where, you know, you're slightly disengaged from those usual sort of anchors of, of time and place. And, uh, you know, I, I think she handles that so well. And also, I mean, just as a kind of general point, the actual the title story in that is like a long, short story, but it's mm. a length I really like. Like, I love, I love short novels. I love novellas. You know, my other favourites are, you know, like I love Shirley Jackson's We've Always Lived in the Castle. I love mm. The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. Um, I really like Mr Fox by Helen Oyeyemi. You know, just sort of very sort of condensed storytelling i guess with with mm. strong voices and a sense of humor that's that's kind of where my favorites lie <laughs> i'm glad you said that because um uh, me and a colleague of mine we've always joked about there being <laughs> which sounds always sacrilegious but there being almost like an ideal length to a yeah. book <laughs> and uh, we sometimes joke by sort of holding books up and going yeah that's a good size of a book but it's interesting because i think different people engage with different you know different lengths so I would, you know I would certainly say as you know someone who you know who is dyslexic that kind of sometimes a large book can be off-putting and, and sometimes I pick it up and then I start reading it and I'm like once the story's got me fine but yes there can be a real joy in a kind of a, a shorter read and they have their own kind of intensity their own power I feel you know we talk about books but I feel yes stories of different lengths they're they're always doing something slightly different Mm -hmm. they kind of exist in their own their own specific kind of realms and i think um i think certainly with the bloody chamber i also love the bloody chamber and yes it's such an interesting length because it's not quite a short story like it it, it crosses (laughs) over a certain boundary and it feels strange in that sense actually as a reader it's like you do subconsciously get used to things being a particular a particular Mm. length it's like I think you know if you read a lot you instinctively expect you know this is the this is where a short story should start Mm. this is this is where it becomes you know a novella this is where it's a a novel but you know it does actually go on like I I think I remember the first time I was reading it I was like hang on a minute it's like I was (laughs) just looking at how much is left in the in the book and knowing that there were all these other stories in there as well yeah you do feel slightly 
on the back foot, I think. It's like, oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I remember flicking through and thinking, wait, is it, it I thought it was different stories. Or so yeah. maybe it's just, maybe it's just this um this one. But it's such an experience reading that book. And it also feels, I think what's so wonderful about writing is she knew exactly what she was doing, but there, there's also a kind of a great freedom to it. You know, you talk about kind of the, the time and that, you know, that sense that with some of the stories, you can't quite sort of say, you know, where are we at that, at that point, which I don't know, for some reason, it kind of makes me think of, you know, it reminds me that sort of fiction and kind of storytelling is, you know, whatever you want it to be. There's kind of these idea of rules, but there's something about, sort of Angela Carter's work that it makes its own rules yeah. and it works perfectly within that and for you as a, as a writer is that inspiring is is that how you sort of approach your own work or or, or do you sort of go go down a different avenue so I actually I do find it inspiring and I also in some ways find it reassuring mm. in addition to it sort of like laying down the gauntlet as well I mean it's just quite a combination of feelings I suppose I guess when I'm when I'm writing my own stuff because I don't plan my first draft is, you know, I start off with like an image and with hokey pokey. I had for years, I had like this, just this, like this single image of people cooking in a kitchen, you know, mm. and it being, you know, a kitchen, you know, I wasn't sure whether it was the 1920s, but it was, I knew it was in the past. And then preparing this meat and one of the pieces of meat has a tattoo on it. Right. And I'd got, I'd got this image in my head for a long time and wasn't quite sure what the story around it was. And I didn't, you know, what I tend to do usually is I'll spend sort of four to six weeks where I'll write a couple of pages every day with absolutely no sense of where the story's going. It's almost mm. like automatic writing. And then I stop when I have something that's pretty much, it's normally, you know, 55 to 60,000 words. And then I look at it and I think, well, this is a big old mess um, because it's just, you know, like sort of, almost bordering on stream of consciousness but I look at it and the <laughs> thing is we you know as humans we are drawn to sort of even when we're very deliberately trying to write nonsense we're made to create stories so there is mm. always a narrative thread in there so it's like when I get to that stage and I look at it and I think what is the story in this and I see it and I can pick it out and that's the you know the process of successive redrafting is bringing out that strand but you know me working in that way which is quite sort of reflexive. I, it does mean that actually I, I do end up producing things that are not very easy to fit into a particular category. Mm. And I think reading writers who, who don't sort of, or who make their own rules is kind of, is, is bolstering in the sense that I think, oh, okay, this is, this is kind of what I'm meant to be doing. That's, you know, mm. that's, I, you know, I, I, I might be in my own lane, but that's all right. <laughs> that's, that's how it should be. Yeah. Yes, because I think particularly in the world of publishing, which I think is fair to say, you know, it does it does like its categories. Yeah. You know, it, it will publish things outside of that. But just for the ease of, you know, kind of going from kind of a publisher down to kind of bookshop to kind of consumer, you know, there's these kind of useful categories that they'll say, oh, this book's like this and this book, you know, does that. But of course, for, for writers, that must be, you know, very difficult. And I know some do work, you know, I've spoken to some writers who sort of knew, you know, who say, oh, when I was writing this book, I knew I wanted to write this type of book. And it has a very clear sort of, you know, you can imagine the kind of marketers going, great, we know exactly yeah. 
exactly what to do with this. But of course, you know, this is a creative pursuit, so it it, it can go in, you know, infinite number of directions. So yes, it, it must be both a kind of a challenge, but, you know, nice for you to kind of go, well, I'm not the only one doing that. There's yeah. a history and there's a peers that, that are doing that as well. Yeah. And, I, you know, it seems to be something, it's like I understand the need for, for the, for the categorisation. And I do know writers who actually find it creatively useful, you know, and mm. it, you do need to know to some extent of it. Well, particularly like for me, it would be during revision rather than the early stages of writing it. But knowing what people's expectations of a genre are, you, you kind of have to have a sense of that because you, you can't sort of subvert something without knowing how it's typically mm. going to land. So all of that I think of as important. But at the same time, I think I am quite awkward and where I kind of am most comfortable creatively is, you know, in, in the places where things cross over rather than, mm. you know, in, you know, firmly in the middle of a particular genre. Yeah. And when you were, you know, you were saying you sort of had this initial, yeah, which I, I love you talking about that initial image you had and with, you know, without sort of, yeah, giving too much away. That's interesting and in what that kind of relates to in the story. But when did you, so you, you wrote this kind of, you know, as you say, a sort of kind of stream of consciousness, sort of getting, getting the words out. And when you sort of step back and look at kind of the whole thing, how much of the story as it exists now was, you know, was there, was there a lot, I presume, was there a lot that was kind of like taken out and then things that were added in like later on? So generally speaking, and I'm not, I'm, this isn't typical for writers. I think, I think, I think most writers write long and cut, but because my early drafts are so short, usually what I'm doing is fleshing things out. Mm. Um, and I have to, like sometimes like when I'm when I'm kind of in the middle of sort of editing and my husband will come home and I'll be like you know well how much did you add today and I'll be like oh actually I cut like 500 words you'd be like no Kate you're getting you're going backwards you're getting this wrong it's really you're not supposed to be so we need more yeah it's like come on you know <laughs> and I'm like oh yeah sorry um so, <laughs> so so yeah so normally the sort of the thing for me is actually trying to uh it's trying to sort of flesh out the detail mm. um and sort of build on what i've done and i mean so so what's what's there in the final draft i think all of those elements i think possibly the the, the there's a very central section that was a later addition but pretty much all of the rest of it was was there early on it's just right. now more detailed um so yeah the um there's kind of there's there's a it sort of moves around a little bit a little bit it goes from you know this luxurious hotel um, mm. in Birmingham that's sort of cut off by a snowstorm you know there are some chapters set in Edwardian Warwickshire you know that relate to the main character's childhood and there's also some chapters set in Zurich where where she trains as a doctor which is just you know that was a, a really interesting city to be researching actually I mean I, you know I was looking a lot at sort of because it's it's where young worked mm. and I'd known that there were female psychoanalysts training at that time but uh it was it was just really interesting looking at sort of what their role was in with within mm. the wider psychoanalytic sort of circles really and so all of that was was great fun do you ever when you're sort of doing the research for one book I don't know just sort of three other books come to mind as well I'm I don't know I can imagine when you're researching something that kind of interests you 
there's a temptation to either go down a, a route which actually for the book that you're writing currently wouldn't work or, or do you find yourself quite like you know what you're there to kind of discover and so and you with this one actually a lot of the stuff it's not like there was like an easy monograph that I could just take off the shelf and you know it would tell me sort of you know how a hotel was run or you know or how a a psychiatric hospital was run you know yeah. um there were, there were things that were kind of relevant and I had to piece it together mm. but also a lot of the time I was looking for primary sources really ephemera you know things that I could yeah. kind of piece together first person accounts things like diaries you know letters um and and sort of putting that all together and in the end I did have more information than I could use I don't think that's unusual and you also have like these weird periods where you you know, you might spend several days trying to establish like one minor historical detail. The one that sticks in my head is like trying to find out whether you could place a, a, a telephone call from Birmingham to Zurich, you know, at a public telephone box. And in fact, you could, but you know, the, the, it would have been slightly different than it, it would have been today. And yes. it, was, it was actually quite hard to sort of find out, you know, what that process would have been. I mean, I'm sure the thing is somebody else might have found the answer immediately it's just the vagaries of sort of you know um finding exactly the right person to ask <laughs> or, mm. or just hitting on the right thing at the right time and there is there is a lot of chance in that yeah yeah it must be difficult because i thought that with um the setting of the hotel there's like references to the kitchens and the kind of the mechanics of it, it you know it, it's kind of like a great machine with you know all these yeah. elements you know working and of course you know we have hotels you know today but there are just a few things which struck me as differences and I thought oh yeah I suppose you know there's just of course the structure that we have now wouldn't have been the, the kind of the structure that they had then and those little things when you're reading are just kind of you know they're part of the general kind of you know scenery in such a kind of important way they really sort of take you there but I imagine you know a single sentence can actually be two days worth of kind of rifling through all this stuff to go what was the structure of a kitchen in those days or yeah. something it, and, and there are always gaps because you're dealing with the historical record. So that's just mm. the nature of, of the work. And But there were lovely things that sort of you find out by accident. You know, I, I was looking at sort of real life. I, I fictionalised the hotel in, in Hokey Pokey, but I was mm. looking at real real life hotels that had, had been there in the, in the 1920s, a couple of which are still standing. And when you look at like sort of the records of, of who was living there, there was, you know, there was a list from the 30s of, of you know, all the names and the ages and the occupation to the people who worked at this one particular hotel and you could tell you know from that that it was a family-run business and I don't know there was actually there was something that felt very moving about looking at that and I mean I didn't use any sort of real people because I I kind of I think when you're writing about monsters (laughs) (laughs) and and I don't think I'm giving away any spoilers here there's you know there there are some you know there are some pretty sort of gruesome gruesome monsters in this story and and sort of vampire adjacent type things going on I just felt a bit queasy about using people who were real um Mm. it it felt much more sort of straightforward ethically to make my characters pretty much out of whole cloth yeah so yeah so many things to balance there and I'm aware obviously you know I sort of did a you know a very brief kind of mention at the beginning I'm aware sort of throughout the conversation we've kind of hinted at the story of Hokey Pokey but for our listeners out there if you could just give a kind of brief description of yeah of of Hokey Pokey yeah so there is uh the main character is a psychoanalyst called Nora who works in Zurich but she is she's English and she returns to England to follow this very famous opera singer 
And, uh, you know, the, the, nominally she's being paid to spy on her to find out if she's having an affair. You know, her husband wants to know. But, like, there's some kind of personal investment that Nora seems unusually fixated on this woman. There's something a bit odd about her feelings towards her. And while they're there, uh, the snowstorm isolates the hotel. Guests start going missing. And some some supernatural things start occurring, which suggest that the disappearances have a link to this murder that happened while Nora was still a child. And uh, yeah, so that's where sort of all the mystery elements flow from uh, and where sort of the horror flows from as well. But, um, it, you know, it was just, it was really nice to set up a situation where they're making, they're availing themselves of, of these services where they're waited on hand and foot in this very luxurious hotel but it's also a very claustrophobic setting and, you know, and lots of opportunities for uncanniness for, you know, mm. hotels are such uncanny places. I, I love them, but they're, they are weird. You know, you're in this place that's sort of, it's kind of pretending to be a home from home, but there are all these constant reminders that it's not. And, and realistically, all sorts of people can just let themselves into your room, you know. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, that's always struck me as, as an idea that has, potential for a horror story yes <laughs> and i think unfortunately we've sort of come towards the end of our conversation i always like to end with a reading from the author reading from their book so would you mind reading a segment from hokey pokey for us yeah no that's fine i've got a section that's from the uh, very middle of the book actually oh perfect um, that'd be amazing yeah, and it it takes it takes place just outside the hotel with a, a woman who lives locally Enid woke to the sound of lapping water. The sun was yet to rise, but she knew, as she tentatively sat up in bed, that the lino would be submerged. She tested the floor with one stockinged foot, and the threadbare wall was instantly sodden. The boarding house stood at the bottom of the hill, and Enid's room was on the ground floor. Before the morning was out, the flooding would surely get worse. She didn't want to wait till she was marooned in her bed, her boots were just in reach by the kitchen door. They'd have to go on first. With her feet more protected, the boots didn't form a failsafe seal, but they'd do. She set about dressing the rest of her person. The emptiness of her stomach and the stiffness in her joints made her slow. She kept in mind the cathedral as a shelter. It would be dry there. Outside, the world was turning to water. She drew her scarf around her face with one hand on the railings, she inched up the slickening path until the cathedral was visible on the brow. Small islands of snow remained, those that had been the hardest packed, and over the white streak of one she saw the unmistakable dark silhouette of Markham's dog. He stood at the narrow entrance to Needless Alley. Enid stopped short, breathing heavily, and let her head fall when the dog turned in her direction. She didn't want him to know he was seen and settling enough to be watched by the dead, never mind meeting eye to eye. Odd that he should come back lately. There had been several sightings, after an absence of years. Something had disturbed his rest. She dared look up again when she heard him moving, his paws wet upon the cobbles. He was walking towards the cathedral now. She saw him weave through the gravestones, his tongue unfolding redly from his jaw. At the doors he butted his large head against the wood until it opened and widened enough to admit him. Enid didn't want to share the church with him. Normally he vanished of his own accord quite quickly. She'd wait a few minutes before checking. 
for now her eyes wandered back to the darkness of Needless Alley, not one of the dog's usual haunts. She resumed shuffling through the slush to the spot where she'd first caught sight of him. All feeling in her toes was lost. She squinted down into Needless Alley. No living creature was visible, man nor beast. A single fresh footprint was still clear in the mire, though. Too dainty for a man. Enid guessed a woman or a growing child. She rubbed her eyes and let them adjust to the poor light ahead of her. Then she saw, perhaps three yards away, clawed fingers, palm up and disembodied on the ground, and behind that, a battered head. Enid stepped back. Her first thought was, here's a bad penny. She knew who that head belonged to, the snooty stranger from the hotel who'd given Enid's coat a nasty look. She was a wrong gun. She'd been loitering by the crypt door. It was always locked, but she wanted to poke around the other side. That much was clear. Everything about her said trouble, for her and whoever was unlucky enough to cross her. True in life, true in death, Enid felt, looking at what was left of her. She shouldn't be lying in bits down Needless Alley. The rain wearied Enid. She made for the cathedral. From the narthex, she tried to see the dog. She gasped. He was up on the altar, looking down on his reflection in a silver plate. He pushed his forelegs into it, as if it were a pool. His head, body, hind legs, tail followed, and he was gone. Enid walked to the votive candles. She took a fresh one from the box. It took a minute to find the box of matches. It had fallen to the quarry floor. The first match wouldn't light. The rain on her hands had left it too damp to catch, but the next one burned well enough as she held it to the wick. The little flame on the candle jumped and shivered. A fire that small couldn't warm you. She crept to the pew, genuflected as well as her knee would let her, and sat down to pray. Soon she'd have to walk to the police station. If anyone had seen her leave Needless Alley, they'd wonder why she didn't report it. As soon as she'd said her prayer, she'd go. As soon as she stopped feeling so cold. Hey, thank you so much for that wonderful reading from Hokey Pokey, which is out now. It's available at Mostly Books in our shop or online or available from wherever you decide to get your books from. Kate, thank you so much for joining us on Mostly Books Meets. Thanks for inviting me. It's been lovely. Mostly Books Meets is presented and produced by the bookselling team at Mostly Books, an award-winning bookshop located in Abingdon, Oxfordshire. All of the titles mentioned in this episode are available through our shop or your preferred local independent. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our previous guests, which include some of the most exciting voices in the world of books. Thanks for listening and happy reading. Hold up. 